My name is Chris Davis and welcome to Model Office's 18th episode in our Signs of Compliance podcast series, where we're showcasing that governance, risk and compliance doesn't need to be as painful as completing your tax returns, but can be support sustainable and profitable business practice. In this episode, we're delighted to host Roderick Renison, partner of Catalyst Partners at Bespoke Mergers and Acquisitions Consultancy, to discuss his views on his career journey and the opportunities and challenges advisor, planners, wealth manager firms and their clients face in meeting ongoing market challenges and regulatory requirements. So let's listen in. Here we are on our 18th episode in our Science of Compliance podcast, where we aim to debunk myths around compliance being a business prevention unit and show how governance, risk and compliance can enable your business to not only survive, but thrive, particularly now through turbulent times. In this episode, we welcome Roderick Renison, Director at Catalyst Partners, to better understand his practical experience in retail financial services and how Catalyst Partners are supporting their clients in meeting market and regulatory challenges. Hello, Roderick. Good morning. How are you? to be here. I'm yep. extremely well. Good, good. Well, it's good to have you. Good to host you. I was just thinking, actually, Roderick, I've probably known you for the best part of a decade now, um, go, going back, and um, really interested in in your in your journey. Really, as we get guests on this, I think it's really important to to understand, you know, uh, more context around your journey. So, just it'd be helpful for our listeners just to if you could just tell us a bit about your background and your journey uh, for, to, to you know to when you you know maybe join the industry and where you are today. Well, um, it's a very long time ago. Um, I hate to admit it, but it's over 45 years ago. Um, uh, I left school, let's just say, in the 70s. And um, uh, I fell into financial services, as many people do, uh, because I was looking for a well-paid holiday job before I went off to read for a degree, and people won't believe this, in library and information studies. I was going to become an academic librarian, uh, and I was going to go right. to Loughborough. But um, I looked around for a job. I sat on the uh, uh, in the arrivals hall at Heathrow, having come back from Belfast for the final time. I'd been to school in Northern Ireland, and lo and behold, there was a little line in the evening news, in our defunct newspaper, that said in two lines, do you want to earn £200 PW per week? And I thought, that's amazing. And a week and a half later, on the 19th of July, whatever year I left school, but in the 70s, um, I found myself selling life insurance door-to-door in Hanslow West. Wow. And I've never looked back or never looked forward, depending on how you look at it. So the rest of my career, um, mostly spent with larger financial institutions, um, after working for a couple of small intermediaries, uh, I landed up working for Barclays Bank in their insurance services division, uh, where I had a, a great time for nearly uh, 10 years. Um, and uh, I then uh, spent um, an interesting um, year um, with the early forerunner to the Prudential um, intermediary branch, who was called Vamber in those days. And I then uh, went off to a firm of accountants called Robson Rhodes, where I subsequently became uh, principal and then partner. And then um, uh, went off to uh, Mercury Asset Management, which was just being taken over by Merrill Lynch in the late yep. 90s and became uh, Group Financial Services Director of Bradford & Bingley, where I got headhunted for the first and only time in the early 2000s. And then finally, um, and some would consider it a day new more or not as the case may be, I became Simon Chamberlain's Chief Operating Officer in Think, the predecessor to succession. And right. we uh, landed up building from 25 to 750 odd advisors across a number of divisions within about three years and we ran out of financial rubber and we sold to AXA mm. in 2000 
and six, and I departed in 2008. And since then, I've been doing a mixture of um, consulting, uh, non-exec roles, interim, um, and these days, most of my time is spent with a, a small but very select lead portfolio and mergers and acquisitions. Wow. Yeah, like eclectic career um, through from the seventies to today. That's that's marvelous. So wealth of experience there. And what what uh, we do have a lot of um, uh, we have younger um, IFAs, wealth managers, and industry uh, professionals on on the call. It's always helpful for them to understand about you know what your we, we, you would define as your career challenges and how you overcame them. Well, uh, I'll I'll tell you a couple of serious ones and then a semi amusing one, um, but. I, the biggest career challenges are really around um, my character, and everybody should go back and reflect on their character once in a while. I, I you know, I, I am a believer to some degree in psychometric tests, and my biggest um, two challenges in my early career, and some would say they're still challenges, um, uh, are to listen. Um, and to control my impatience because I am naturally impetuous. I like to get things done. Yeah. And I think those are two universal traits that people need to seek to control. I mean, listening is a fundamental part of the advice process um, and being patient um, and seeking to research before you make major decisions um, rather than rush into them um, are obvious things. Um, the more amusing one, perhaps, is that um, when I went to Vanbra, I was going to, uh, I, I spent a very interesting year um, working on in um, basically the intermediary division um, uh, that became Prue Hoban and latterly the Prue Broker um, uh, branch. And um, when I was interviewed, um, they found out that I was a teetotaler and they said, oh, I'm not sure we can take you on because actually you won't be able to go out to lunch with people and buy them. And I said, well, I'm perfectly capable of buying them alcohol and it really won't be an issue. So in the end, they hummed and they hauled and they took me on. But, you know, when I went out with a lot of people for lunch and they found I wasn't drinking, they said, God, that's such a relief. I don't have to drink. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, that was uh, so <laughs> that was one challenge. Um, the only challenge I have now uh, when I go to the uh, occasional dinner that people still um, invite me to is actually getting a non-alcoholic drink apart <laughs> from water. Mm. You know, people do assume that you're going to drink alcohol. Um, but actually, you know, for younger advisors, you were talking about them, you know, you look at the percentage of the under 25 population now or the under 30 population that don't drink. And I think it's in excess of 20 percent. Yeah, you're right. And um, cer certainly um, it's, it's an interesting one. I spent a lot of my time in Hong Kong and, um, and Asia, and it was a very big drinking culture out there, too. Um, and it, I, it makes me laugh with alcohol. It's, it's probably the, the only drug that the vast majority of people actually encourage you to take um, on, a, on a consistent basis. But um, no, that's, that, that's, that's great stuff and, and really good context. Um, and good advice, actually, particularly around. I, I really enjoyed that the, the the what you're saying about impatience and listening, because the big part now, if you're looking at the industry and where where it's going, particularly with things like the consumer duty, which we'll talk about in a little while, you've got the whole piece around emotional intelligence, really, and empathy and and, and listening and patience and so forth. So that that was uh, that's kind of a key key area which uh, isn't going to go go away. Really interested in your your current role with Catalyst Partners. Can you tell us a bit about that and what, what, what you're up to in, in, the, um, in, the, in the industry? Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's come about through really a process of evolution. Um, I first started off in 
what might be described as MLA um, yeah. with Bradford and Bingley. I um, was um, a very junior part of the, uh, even though I was senior exec, I was uh, sort of the, the bottom person out of five uh, making decisions and influencing about buying businesses. We bought a couple and then the strategy changed. So I got a bit of experience there. Moving on to um, uh, then... Uh, think before succession and we bought um even before i'd arrived um 10 businesses and um destiny who we merged with bought 22 so i learned really all about how not to buy businesses in many respects um and what could go wrong and i was then on my effectively on my own doing um uh, providing input and advice from um probably about 2014 2015 again and then i bumped into a a guy at a owen james event um who i'd known slightly uh, called John Chapman, who is a wonderful guy. He's a um, chartered accountant by background, yep. uh, much quieter and uh, less uh, uh, sort of volatile, if you like, or, or, or less excitable than I am. And I realized that two and two could make five because he could do the bits that I couldn't really do as well uh, in terms of the spreadsheets and other things. And we've had a very successful four years together. But this year we decided because we were Um, expanding so well, we've actually come together with two other like-minded individuals, a guy called Martin Laverick, who uh, originally was running a business uh, in in Bath, um, and uh, the guy called Andy Cumming, uh, who's based in Scotland, who um, was previously with Close Brothers and before that Scott uh, Scott Moncrief. And the four of us work in a very um, sort of what I would describe as collegiate partner way. Uh, We we essentially... um, get our business uh, through referrals. Uh, We don't send out lots of uh, emails um, and uh, we uh, work in pairs. That's a rule that we have in-house. We'll always have a second partner involved. And essentially, um, we're dealing with um, intermediaries who are looking at succession. And when I say succession, I mean it's not just about selling their businesses. That, that's what the majority want to do. But we look at other alternatives. Is it family succession? Is it a management buyout? Could it be an employee ownership trust? All of those things we look at. So we're aiming to offer a very bespoke, uh, individual, individualized according to each um, client uh, service based on what they want. And if somebody's already found a buyer, uh, we will on occasions work with them to handhold them through the process. So uh, that's us um, in a nutshell. And we are I'm pleased to say, very busy. Excellent. That's great. Good to hear. And thank you for that. I mean, obviously, M&A has been a very hot topic, hasn't it? And it's been a very um, you know, big part of the market over the last few years. Maybe you could argue maybe tailing off a little bit at the moment with what's going on economically. But um, what, what would you say are, are you know, are, are the big opportunities uh, for advice uh, firms, planners and wealth management firms in the in the M&A space at the moment? Well, I think the opportunities um, are various. I mean, the first is, of course, to not um, get involved with M&A and decide that you want to go on building your business uh, yeah. for, uh, to create value. Um, there's a variety of why people choose not to do that. Um, it might be actual retirement. It might be illness. It might be just I'm fed up with financial services. I want out. There's a variety of reasons. And what we seek to do is to understand what people want. But we are dealing with people who still want to uh, stay advising they still want to expand the business but maybe they want to get together with someone who can provide finance um, and they retain a portion of the equity so what we're interested in is actually understanding what people want and then finding solutions i mean there are after all nearly 160 buyers in the market at the moment Mm. if you um, define a buyer as someone who says they might buy a business or has bought one or more in the last five years and you know we know there are 35 36 
privately uh, private equity backed um, consolidators there, of which twenty four or something like that are from the U from North America, US or uh, somewhere in North America, and it's provided a very very um, if you like vibrant market because the UK. Um, has been seen hitherto um, as a stable market. Financial planning is well regulated, and yep. the income is sticky. And so, it's a natural place for M and A to want to place some of their money. Hundred percent. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. And you know, looking at maybe challenges with M and A. I mean, uh, you know, there are there have been some horror stories out there. Um, how would you say advisor firms, planners, you know, wealth management businesses need to avoid um, maybe the the, you know, the, the, the areas that, that you've seen where it's gone horribly wrong? Well, um, the first point I'd make, which I appreciate to the listeners, uh, some of them will be um, self-serving, but the first thing is to go and actually make sure you've got the right advice before you start, um, mm. and because there are quite a number of intermediaries, surprising um, number, who set off and actually... Uh, this journey because they maybe just get a call or they get an approach and they don't have advisors in place. So the first thing I think is get competent professional advice. Um, the second is before you start to actually define your objectives and I like people who get them down on paper and then you know what are your red lines, what are your grey lines, what are your white lines and actually measure what you're seeking to do against those. Uh, and the other thing is get consensus both inside and outside your business that I, you know we meet owners on occasions where perhaps they're the majority shareholder or the senior partner and they want to do something but they haven't actually necessarily got on board their fellow uh, partners or um, directors yeah and also sometimes <laughs> they don't consult their spouse or partner back at the ranch and we have had instances <laughs> where um uh, we had one Amazing, uh, very amusing one, but it wasn't amusing for him, is that uh, John went down to see someone about uh, two years ago after he said, oh, I want to sell. And his wife was in the meeting and she said, I don't want you anywhere near my, me, me, the household, the business. I don't want you to sell. Just keep working. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, it, it, it's a sort of cliche, but it is really important to understand what people's motivations are. Mm. And I think the other thing is then to do really good diligence on the buyer that you think is your preferred buyer and get to it through a process of very systematized and logical deduction mm. um, and that's one of the things that uh, we think is one of our strengths in terms of helping our clients get to which is really going in with your eyes open absolutely 100 percent. that's really good advice and um Regarding, I mean, regulation, because obviously, you know, model office is, is a reg tech and we're, we're very much in, around ensuring firms have the diagnostics and gap analysis and audit, audit programs in place um, to meet the you know, huge regulatory challenges that they've got. The consumer duty is obviously an all encompassing piece and they have, you know, I'm just thinking about the four outcomes there, you know, products and services, um, price and value, consumer understanding, consumer support. Um, do you see that as a hindrance or a support for the M&A world? Because you've probably got more of an emphasis now on getting the clients more informed and communicated in the process of M&A with the consumer duty than before. Uh, I certainly don't see it as a, as a hindrance uh, yep. for a well-run firm. I mean, we start from the premise that having really uh, robust compliance and risk it's not just compliance it's and risk management mm. um, is really important to be able to demonstrate that um, and that's demonstrable in a number of ways depending on the size of the firm but 
you know, we, we look to firms who have an external compliance consultant where they have regular reports and they take note of them and they've acted on them. So that's the first thing. I mean, I think specifically with regard to consumer duty, um, you, a, a lot of intermediaries, it's fair to say, don't fully appreciate it yet. And sure, they're supposed to have their plans in place by the end of October and then, you know, be fully up and running by July next year. But um, I think it is important that people work through what the consequences are. And I mean, you know, consumer duty, really important you actually think about client understanding. And buyers are interested to the extent they want to understand a firm's advice process. They want to look at the owners of the business and see, oh, do they really live the values they espouse? So, yep. you know, I, I, I always encourage people to go back and review their centralised investment proposition or their centralised retirement propositions and say, actually, are you living um, the words? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, uh, there is certainly one well-known uh, compliance, a very good one, compliance consultancy, produces an excellent uh, CIP document, but it is a template. And the number of people I've seen copy the template mm. and not be able to live the uh, actions um, are more than just on one hand. And so, you know, we, we really think that compliance and risk is a fundamentally important part of the process. And consumer duty should be something that well-run firms can with a little bit more effort in some cases, demonstrate. I mean, there will be some work to be done by some firms, but they should be able to demonstrate how they relate to clients and why they can actually um, demonstrate that they are going to be able to adhere to the four outcomes you've mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I totally uh, adhere to that. And I think you know, I, I really like what you've just said in the sense of ensuring firms walk their talk, because if you look at where the regulator are going, the FCA being a data-led regulator, it's all now really evidence-based practice. We, we, you know, we always talk about the fact that if you haven't got the data, it didn't happen, and if you've got the data, it better have happened. And, and I think you know that piece around getting a template is one thing, but then walking your talk on it and showcasing that you're actually taking action is is a completely different element to it. I mean, for those firms out there who are listening in to this uh, podcast, um, uh, Roderick, what, and they are thinking about what maybe considering about the M&A side of things what would you say do you have any kind of like key tips for them well i do let's just stay with compliance for a moment sure. um uh, or regulation i mean the area that we all know causes most angst for most buyers in relation to compliance is uh, or are really defined benefit transfers yep. and it's not the for most buyers it's not an issue if you've done some uh, providing they don't make up a, a large proportion necessarily of your, um, uh, your your total assets. But even if they do, it may be okay. The real issue is, can you demonstrate that you have a robust process and can you provide really, really granular data? So one of the areas that we focus on very heavily with all our clients, but particularly with those with more DBTs, which as I say, may not necessarily be an issue in itself, mm -hmm. um, although certain buyers will be have more or less appetite, risk appetite, is can they be can you can they provide data? And that also leads into more generally about data. Buyers now expect vendors, sellers to be able to demonstrate that they can 
use data extraction tools, you know, their back office systems to provide really good data. Um, you know, who are the clients? What are their ages? Where do they live? What are the client groupings? Yep. Um, how many have you got over half a million? How many have you got between 250,000 and half a million? All of those things are an expectation that buyers have. And that comes back generally to the point about compliance and risk as well as data. They are value enhancers or value detractors, depending on how well you present. And we think for the sake of having uh, some time to prepare and some time to document, and maybe on occasions taking a limited amount of external consultancy to be able to manipulate your data um, positively, you know, from whatever back office you use, if you're not quite sure how to do it, really pays very positive dividends in a sale process. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Really good advice. OK, so we're coming to the end of our time, really. And um, what uh, I always do is I always ask the same two questions at the end of these sessions. And um, the first question to you is if you could change one thing in the industry, what would it be? Um, I'm going to be a bit trite here, forgive me, Chris, <laughs> but I'm going to say, could we stop calling it an industry and call it a profession? Because I think, I mean, I know Very that's good. a bit trite. And the, and the subsidiary part of that, which is one of my pet uh, isms, is please let's stop referring to customers, which implies an occasional transaction, unless that's what you've had, and yep. talk, talk about clients. Yep. Uh, because I think it's an attitude of mind. Absolutely. No, very good points. Well made. And finally, uh, where would you see yourself in five years? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, in the um, short term, uh, my wife has announced to me that I cannot stop work because she is now about to become a uh, vice captain of the ladies section of Woburn Golf Club okay. and um, she's going to then become captain so until the middle of November 2024 um, I am going to be a golf widower and so I have to keep working. Yeah. Uh, thereafter it's open to question uh, we've bought a house this year in Norfolk um, but the first thing or the second thing I did is install um, a good uh, back office uh, system there you know so I've got um, fiber to cabinet um, or whatever it is, Wi-Fi. So I'm well protected. But as I sort of get towards my, dare I say, my seventh decade, I accept I might work a little less, um, let others do a little bit more, and I'll spend a bit more time, I hope, in uh, areas where perhaps it's not remunerated, but putting something back into the sector. A good final example for you is a guy came up to me after the Money Marketing Interactive where I was on an M&A panel last week, yep. and he said, I've got a desperate problem. He said, I, I, I sold my business to somebody who wanted the name and the registration last year, but it's turned out to be a nightmare. Where do mm. I go to get some legal advice? And I think we all have a duty. It doesn't matter whether we don't get paid. I was on the phone to a very good lawyer this morning. I put him in touch. That's the sort of thing I think, you know, I'll do more of, which is it doesn't matter whether it's paid. It's actually helping people. It's retaining an interest and keeping a mental stimulation going. Absolutely. No, really, again, really good points. Well made and, and great, great advice. Look, Roderick, it's always good to engage with you, sir. And, uh, and with you know, such a wealth of experience, I'd highly recommend any of the listeners. If you are going down that route of looking at M&A, then um, certainly um, contact uh, Roderick and Catalyst Partners. In fact, what we'll do is when we, we put this out as on, on, so, on social media, we'll put a link in, if, if you're okay, Roderick, to Catalyst Absolutely, www.thecatalysts.uk. There's no co, so it's a quite yep. memorable um, uh, website address. That's very, very kind of you. I really enjoyed it this morning. Thank you very much for having me. No, thank you, Roderick, and have a great day.
Hope you enjoyed uh, that conversation as much as I did. Uh, always great to speak to Roderick. Um, obviously, yeah, um, a veteran now in the industry, but he's done some amazing work and still does. If you're interested in the um, in the mergers and acquisitions side of things, then I'd certainly recommend you uh, get in contact uh, with Roderick and and his partners um, at Catalyst, and uh, we'll uh, we'll put the link to uh, their website um, uh, below the link to this podcast when we publish it on social media. If you're um, itching to get on uh, one of these episodes or you can let us know who you'd like to hear uh, on on, uh, the Science of Compliance podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Um, Please uh, get in contact, plus uh, any particular topics that you'd like us Uh, to cover also the next episode we'll be speaking to Mike Barrett from the Lancat Consultancy um, all about dedicated to the consumer duty so uh, thank you for listening and um, hope you enjoy uh, this recording cheers